0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, happy holidays. This is the final episode of the year. How's it going? I hope you're doing okay. Every year at this time, I give a shout out to the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, It was one of the first uh, humane societies to be established. In fact, it was the first humane society to be established in North America, and today it's one of the largest in the world. It was founded on the belief that animals are entitled to kind and respectful treatment at the hands of humans and must be protected under the law. It's a privately funded not-for-profit, and it has more than 2 million supporters across the country. Why don't you be one of them? Go to ASPCA.org and donate, join me in helping prevent animal cruelty at ASPCA.org. Hey, hello, 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 how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Merry Christmas, if you are a uh, Christmas person. Today, uh, the the day that this episode goes live, is Christmas Day 2019. What do you think of that? Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and uh, imminently, Happy New Year. This is the final episode of 2019. Which is hard to believe. I can't believe another year has come and gone. But uh, that is indeed the case, and I could not be more pleased to have as my guest today my dear friend, the poet Milo Martin. Uh, I have known Milo for a long time. We met all the way back in graduate school, and he has been a mainstay in the Los Angeles poetry community. Uh, for years and years, uh, as well as the San Francisco and the Bay Area uh, Area poetry community. He is the author of a collection called Poems for the Utopian Nihilist, which is available from Echo Park Press. And he has a forthcoming collection due out sometime next year called Sublemon Sublime. So keep your eye out for that. Additionally, Milo has been collaborating uh, on an art book, with, uh, a pair of very gifted and celebrated artists, uh, named Gigi Spratley and Jack Waltrip and, uh, Jack Waltrip incidentally played saxophone with Miles Davis. And I asked, uh, Milo if he could describe this art book, which he has been telling me about, you know, for a while now in, in drips and drabs. And uh, he tells me, quote, that it features uh, organic, hyper-colored, neo-psychedelic, sumptuous digital landscapes of an extraterrestrial world consisting of metaphysical forest animals, sea creatures, and ancient dragons in a fight for justice against governmental oppression. The working title is All Claws Crossed, Odyssey of the Beasties, Volume 1. So, uh we have that to look forward to as well. And as Milo is uh you know, a poet, I should I should mention that he is a very gifted performer and has performed all over the country and all over the world. He's done multiple tours in Europe and has performed his work in front of thousands of people. And I thought it would be cool to have him read some poetry for you. So, uh before we get started with a conversation, here is Milo Martin uh, reading a new poem of his called The Buckles Are Clicking. Okay? The Buckles Are Clicking. Here he is, folks. This is uh, Milo Martin. And the
1: buckles are clicking, intravenously dripping. And the scissor-tailed mockingbirds are choking on bus fumes, intoxicating. The helicopters are chopping, chopping down palm trees like dragonflies on fire. And the unwanted babies are internally kicking, inherently knowing that they will be burdensome babies. And the assassin has been extinguished now taken out by someone who used to be his special friend. And yes, the corpse is sad, and yes, the corpse is impatient, but the corpse understands now the filigree of flowery things, the harping together of vibrational strings. And hopefully, there will be an enlightenment to the argument and a resiliency to all of this redundancy. Because you're the one I want to steal horses with. Yeah, you're the one with whom I want to steal horses. And it's an out-of-body suicide. It's something only you can decide. And the doubters are in disbelief of the silvery vision down by the junkyard. And Eros is a department store full of rubies. And what you thought was yours is not. And what you found is what you thought was lost. And what you remembered is what you really forgot. Mal d'amour, mal des don. And we're all looking into the window of the car next to us, heaving at the forever red light, thinking that that might be our one true love. And the Santa Ana winds are emanating that feverish coyote breath in our direction again. And you're the only one who has the twinkling strength to pull my tractor out of this ditch. But why did you have to do that thing with the thing thing that ended up turning into that other thing? I guess it doesn't really matter anyway, because... The planet is just an old yellowed newspaper crumpled up into a ball bound with masking tape. And Mickey Mouse is really the Tasmanian devil. And the original gangster is not feeling very original anymore. And the workers are going home. And the workers are going home. And the Mexican bodega is out of baby milk again, and the abdomen fuckers are abdomen fucking again. And the single mother downstairs fingers herself absent-mindedly, intravenously, intravenously dripping, and the buckles are clicking. And the cows and the chickens are hung upside down like stuck pigs on bloodied meat hooks while 92% of the population is cheering along with it like a parade on the 4th of July. And the buckles are clicking, intravenously dripping and Yitzhak Rabin cries the icicle tears of the graveyard sand baby. Meshuggana, Meshuggana, it's all gone, Meshuggana. Focockta, Focockta, it's all gone, fucking Focockta. Focaccia, Focaccia, all I want is a nice piece of Focaccia. And sometimes... The only semblance of sanity stems from the slight meow of your tuxedo cat. And the overhead projector shall illuminate your shiny forehead for doing mostly all of the right things. And when the pine trees become candlesticks, we'll know that we've gone way too far. For this is our lovely legacy... This will be our heirloom glory. This is our benediction table, our coronation story, with the springing forth and the shrinking and the shrinking and the springing forth and all the melancholy wiltings and the revelatory rejuvenations and the minor disasters and the bright emanations and everything is dying and everything is being born and everything is being born and everything is dying and the fertility and the decay and all the decay and all the fertility and the earthly awkwardness and the flying agility and the eternal essence and the muted mortality and the salt and the pepper and we're working together and the black and the white and we're really all right. And the lion and the gazelle and the gazelle and the lion and the lion and the gazelle and the gazelle chases the lion up a tree And the two Antenna finally got married. The wedding was no big deal, but the reception was incredible. And it's all because of you. It's all because of you. That my butter is toasted and my flakes are frosted. And we're all waiting around for the avocado to finally ripen. And the dead are listening to your secret thoughts, cocking their tiny machine-like heads like birds hearing a siren. And you forced me to age when I didn't want to age just yet. And there is no need for me to cry when all the puddles and lakes are already brimming over with vomited vodka And sometimes disintegration is a representation of amelioration. And this city will keep pulling on your lactating nipples until you are milked dry. Before you've had the chance to replenish your eternal supply and the buckles are clicking, intravenously dripping. Houdini once proclaimed that clairvoyants are similar to vultures, and the postponement has been postponed once again due to the double taxation. And we'll fall asleep together into the sleep of 777 swans slipping silently into the slumber of shadows and snow. And the velocity of time is equal to the energy of love. The velocity of time is equal to the energy of love. And the angels and the gargoyles will battle tirelessly with their brilliant wits behind the thick bushes in the community park, and it is a sure thing That the green field of your heart shall be trampled with soccer cleats somewhere during the course of the game. And the sister with multiple sclerosis listens wistfully to the church bells, summon the hour of two, a mercurial message of hope and doom. And the worms will curl blindly through the eye sockets of unbreathing school teachers in a world where insects are blessed with telepathy and birds are versed in mathematics. And he's taking a ride, a magical ride on the back of a drooling yellow eyed beast because smoking and tripping is all that he does. And he doesn't even know who is his father. And she said, it's like holding a pair of scissors next to the soft part of your inner arm. And you will have your truss peeled away like a large swatch of exfoliated skin. And when I was nine, my mother illustrated the facts of life to me using two coffee cups and a cigarette. And everywhere I go, I always somehow manage to find a nice peppermint surprise. And maybe we're all just floating around in an accidental breeze, and the end of the world is coming, but it's been coming and coming and coming and coming and coming for over 4,000 years And the most sobering thing to see is the wheels still spinning on an overturned car. And we're all basically eight years old until the day we get roped and lowered into the ground. And your eyes are streaming light pools of purple-green silky moss. And everyone is breathing. And many are quitting to breathe now. And the buckles are clicking Intravenously dripping And the flowers are doing their goddamn best to bloom
0: All right, guys, that is Milo Martin reading his poem The Buckles Are Clicking What do you think of that? Uh, I had a great time talking with Milo He came over and we hung out for almost two hours. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Uh, as I said, this is the last episode of 2019. I will be back in the new year with a new episode on January 8th. So uh, I'm going to take a little bit of a break for the holidays and then I'll be back and uh, things will continue as, uh, as usual on the other people podcast with new episodes going live every Wednesday. Okay. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, uh, without any further ado, I could not be more pleased to introduce, uh, and to share with you this conversation with my old buddy, Milo Martin his poetry collections again. uh, There's one in print called Poems for the Utopian Nihilist available from Echo Park Press. And stay tuned for a forthcoming collection called Sublemon Sublime. Here he is, folks. This is Milo Martin.
1: We actually um, went to that school in its golden era, uh with all of the superstars like uh, these these great old new york uh superstars uh like Hubert Selby jr and Mel Shavelson and Shelly uh, Berman, Shelley Berman. Uh, Shelley Berman. <laughs> did you take Shelley Berman's class? I did not take <laughs> Shelley Berman, but I did as the uh, editor of uh, the poetry editor of the uh, Southern Californian uh, Review. I did publish a poem by Shelley Berman called Crows. Did you really? Yes. I didn't know he wrote poetry. Well, he doesn't really but did he didn't he, rest in peace he 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 gave it a good go and it was it was sort of a cool poem because he's just talented pretty much anything he does
0: or anything he did was was good and for people uh, listening we should who might not have uh context shelly berman is uh kind of a seminal american comedian or was a seminal american comedian it was him, and um, what's the guy, what's the comedian who was his contemporary? Mort Sal? Is that right? The old New York comedian? Yeah, like those Adirondack... Uh,
1: yeah. Uh, Borscht Belt or whatever. Borscht Belt uh, uh, comedians, and uh, and he was also on the, uh, the Larry David... Curb Your Enthusiasm. Curb he, Your, he was the father of Larry David right. on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And all these guys were just so quick-witted um i mean their their repartee was just uh just unparalleled they were just so quick uh to speak with them you'd make a comment and they would pop something in that that would just sort of blow your mind like how clever it was and and how nifty and cool and edgy it was, and a lot of times uh, you didn't have uh, you didn't have a remark,
0: you didn't have a rebuttal well, because I mean, it was so it was so. Shelley was volatile in his class. He would. So uh, you took Shelley's class? Yeah, I took comedy writing from Shelley Berman, oh, okay. and he would like he'd sort of lose his temper in like a really funny way, but he was, he was serious. Uh, oh. and you know, just would pop off if somebody wasn't getting what he was saying or, you know, you asked him a question, he'd be like, Oh, you know, he'd lose it. But, uh, I think I've talked about this on this show before, but at the, every semester he would have his students out to his house for like a, a lunch. Mm. He lived at this beautiful home out in the Valley, mm. like way on the deep Valley, like horse country kind of. Mm-hmm. And he would, uh, he would have all this food. His wife was darling, ah. like the sweetest, like kind of like, you know, cause you didn't know what to expect or something, but she was like as genteel and sweet as you could possibly hope for. And then Shelly's this kind of like wacky, you know, uh, hot tempered comedian kind of guy <laughs> and all over this house. And I mean all over in glass cases, uh, beautifully displayed, like, like in museum style, Mm-hmm knives knives he has or had uh, a huge knife collection this is fetish well i mean
1: he did have a cutting uh, <laughs> sense of humor
0: <laughs> but i mean what uh, the fuck uh, this guy's into knives. knives okay yeah knives you never i mean who knew Guy's a, com- he's a comedian, and he loves knives. And he loves knives. <laughs> uh, what, what a cut-up. You know? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so you and I, let, let's paint the picture for people. Like, I show up, we show up to the first class. It was a fiction workshop on the first day of graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I walked into the building where the program was. And I, I think we were on the main floor mm-hmm. near the elevators. Wait, Phillips Hall? Yeah. Yeah, good memory. And uh like either you came out of the elevator, we met near the elevators. That was it. I don't remember shit, but I remember that. And she yep. was just like, Hey man, and hey. It was it was on like Donkey Kong.
1: That was it. We we just yeah. Uh, certain people you just hit it off and you're sort of like, Where have you been all my life? Yeah. Okay, good, good. Uh fine to meet you. Friends okay, ever now, friends ever since. Let, let's let's just do this.
0: So uh you are by trade, a poet yes, and uh you hail from Bay Area yes, i do born
1: born and raised uh, born in Carmel by the sea, which is the uh the official name. most people uh call it Carmel, but it's actually Carmel hyphen by hyphen, the hyphen sea. <laughs> carmel by the sea uh which uh, where uh, clint eastwood was the mayor oh right uh, at a certain point in the uh early 80s and he still got a um uh, a restaurant a bar there called the uh hog's breath Inn.
0: um does he have a house up there or no
1: yeah he he still lives up there and um it's actually where uh where uh the film play misty for me was shot and there's all these great shots of uh of carmel which is a very you know rustic town we're talking like uh, early 20th century i, I think uh, actually uh, carmel was founded in 1903 and it has always and started out as a haven for bohemian artists and uh you know, writers uh, you know robinson jeffers and uh, and and the likes um
0: now it's a very rich town a lot of rich people live there and i was going to say it doesn't seem i bet i was up there for a wedding i mean this was years ago but i was like this place is fancy
1: it's super fancy
0: but uh
1: it it didn't start out that way and there're still a lot of like really you know r- rustic little uh, threshy uh cottage houses and stuff like that. And there are, you know, cobblestone, uh, streets and, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's become pretty fancy and, and, and has been, uh, uh, home to, you know, a lot of celebrities and pebble beach and the whole uh, golf thing. and, and, um, and what have you, but it really is just a just a great little coastal town, and that 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 whole monterey peninsula where i uh lived in a lot of places um it 's also steinbeck country i mean it 's where john steinbeck uh he was originally from Salinas, which is inland, which is you know uh, agricultural uh lettuce country. And he uh, he moved into a little town on the uh, Monterey Peninsula uh, called Pacific Grove, where I lived. I actually lived uh, two two doors down from where he used to live. Wait, like as an adult? Uh, Yeah, as a a teenager, and um, and uh, coming into my twenties. Um where there's now a plaque, you know, that he lived there and so forth and in in all of his books he writes of the Monterey Peninsula and um I also spent a lot of time in Carmel Valley which is inland uh from the ocean and it's just a just a gorgeous golden valley uh if you read uh you know travels with charlie or uh uh many of his books uh Canary row i mean i grew up uh you know um busting into those old uh sardine factories and you know lighting fires and getting high and throwing rocks through the windows and <laughs> and uh that's all changed now since the uh the aquarium came and they 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 really gentrified the whole place but when i was a kid that it, um it, it was really uh pretty um uh pretty rough hewn and just really like a whole track of old sardine factories and and the whole um, sardine mystery is 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 quite uh, uh, compelling and and strange in that at one point inexplicably there were there were no sardines in the Monterey Bay, and then almost overnight the Monterey Bay was just inundated with sardines. It was just a bay full of sardines. And so you needed people to fish uh, the sardines. And who were the best sardine fishermen in the world? The Italians from Sardinia, the, the original capital of sardines and so it was uh, it was like a gold rush and um so you had um many many uh italian immigrants and still uh, the monterey peninsula is is uh uh is full of italian families san
0: francisco's got a lot of italians
1: oh yeah absolutely absolutely um Joe DiMaggio. Right. Or or the DiMaggio brothers, Vince, Dom, and Joe. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Billy Martin. He's Bay Area? Yeah. uh, He was uh, West Berkeley. Billy Martin uh, was out of West Berkeley and Casey Stengel. No shit. I no thought like sh- Billy Martin was from like Queens or something. Right. Well, he played for the Yankees, so he you know, he's associated with New York, but right. he's he's a he's a kid out of West Berkeley, which was actually a, a really tough part of Berkeley back in the day. Okay. And I lived uh you know, in towns around there, El Cerrito and Orinda and um so forth and and then lived in in the city. Uh, you know, for for a dozen years, it, it still freaks me out that I've been in Los Angeles longer than I've been. Like, yeah, longer than I was in San Francisco. Certainly, uh,
0: uh, by twice. I can't. I can't believe I've been here almost twenty years. I can't believe it. It's how did we get here? Yeah, that's how Uh, I feel. And why are we still here? Right. Um, (laughs) Like, is this going to just continue? Like, is it like, when does this end? I guess I'm just here. Yeah. We're just here now, but it feels like the kind of place, like not many people are from here. It feels like a place you sort of wind up or you're passing through. I don't know. There's just not a sense of permanence to it for me. And yet, this is home. I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere.
1: And this is uh home for me too. And you know, a lot of people come to LA to quote, make it unquote. And I know I didn't come here to make it. Certainly I ended up here uh, quite by uh, mistake and quite by circumstance. And um, I, yeah, I never had any idea or motivation to live in L.A. And being a Northern Californian, we we looked down our noses at Los Angeles and Angelenos. And uh, we'd be at a party and somebody would say... Uh, you know, I'm from Los Angeles. And we'd say, oh, we're sorry to hear that.
0: <laughs> yeah, there and, is there is like this antipathy. Oh, there there is. But it there, feels there. like it's more San Francisco to L.A. Because I don't feel like Los Angelinos are like, oh, fuck San Francisco. But San Francisco is like, right. fuck L.A. Yeah, <laughs> fuck
1: L.A. And... And then I ended up here after a uh, you know European voyage, uh, you know, sailed crew
0: on a forty nine foot sloop. Uh, well, th- you know what, you boy. know what, we gotta we gotta get here because there's so much to unpack. Um, I want to get to that boat, <laughs> but we need to. I feel like in order to um, make sure listeners understand you and understand how you became a poet, because I don't think. I think some of it is you came out of the womb a poet. I think there's some of that. Some of it's genetic. Um, your mother's a poet. Right? Well, my mother isn't
1: a poet. However, she played a large part in um, uh, prison poetry in the uh, 70s and the 80s. So she uh, gleaned uh Prisoner poetry from San Quentin. But like, so she wasn't performing. She was going there and helping them write poetry? No, she was uh, going to San Quentin to collect their poetry oh, okay. That's and then right. to perform their poetry at San Quentin and then at, like, San Francisco coffee houses and uh, uh, venues around uh San Francisco, Sausalito, Berkeley and all of that and she would perform with a um with a black um jazz flautist uh as uh, as a as accompaniment, and um and you would go to these things and i would i would be the kid running around the coffee house you know so, uh, you know, that's a lot of, you know, where my influence came, uh, as, as well as my grandmother from Brooklyn, who was an elementary school teacher. And she, uh, she knew a lot of poetry, um, uh, by, by heart, by memory. And she would recite, um, uh, these these poems to me when we would be walking and so forth and and I still remember uh my very first poem and it was when we were walking my grandmother and I and let me see goes my very first poem ever was pots and pans pots and pans Rusty cans, jars of jam. That was my very first poem. You wrote that. I, I wrote that it. just while we we were walking, and um, and and she encouraged. Yeah, you know, I I I was always sort of encouraged uh, to write, and my mother was a very very tough critic i mean she used to critique my coloring books for god's sakes so, i
0: remember you know you just i just met your mom for the first time about right. a year ago right right or in, in february. Yeah. february okay so yeah. yeah so your mom came out and performed with you at beyond baroque correct it is the single best poetry reading i've ever been to it was so moving it was like i because like I don't think I've never seen a poet have his mom come out and your mom read your work. Yeah, and she slayed. She slayed. She she totally slayed. (laughs) And and this is the weird thing,
1: we'd never shared a stage together, and she had never seen me read poetry live. Uh, She'd never been to uh, one of my shows ever. Wow. And, um, so this was like something that we always wanted to do and it just fell into place. Thanks to Richard Modiano of, uh, beyond Baroque who, uh, gave us the opportunity to do that. But I mean, it's like, I mean, have you, have you ever, I, I, I've never seen a mother and son do a poetry show together, and uh it it was it was quite exhilarating and it was so awesome and so yeah so she came to stay with me and i said okay mother um so let's uh let's go over the the poems and she goes i don't rehearse <laughs> <laughs> and i said oh what do you mean she goes i i don't rehearse i keep it fresh i i said you don't read the poems beforehand just you know to hear how they sound or something and she goes nope i i don't rehearse i said well okay w- well at least we have to put a set list together and uh and we did and i also uh just want to interject this that uh I I wanna dedicate this reading to Yvonne
0: de la Vega. Um You mean this interview or this uh What did I say? You said reading. Reading? Yeah Did I? <laughs> yeah. Well you're used to uh, doing uh, readings. I, yeah.
1: <laughs> this reading, yeah, okay. Um to Yvonne de la Vega. Um uh a homegirl a uh, sister uh, very talented, uh, poetess, um, um, guitar player, um, mom, uh, wonderful lady, wildcat. We spent a lot of time partying together. We'd done, uh, probably a hundred readings together. Um, and, and with a sorrowful heart, uh, I have to say she um uh, she's singing her poetry in the sky uh now as of uh three days ago um and I just wanna pledge my love to my home girl yvonne and uh and the reason that i I bring this up is that Yvonne came to that poetry reading um she was there um uh, yeah, you sat with her, right? Well, like, sat, yeah, right
0: you, by her, yeah. Yeah.
1: And I've seen and, her at
0: readings over the and, years. And reading,
1: yeah, and just such such a talent, just such a heavy chick. I mean. Um, and what and, happened? And we, we don't just, know what happened. You know, she fell asleep and she didn't wake up. But my, my point is this, is that she brought my mom a bouquet of flowers for that show. Hmm i mean it just shows the heart she just had um she had like a, a watermelon sized heart you know and um and i i just i just love you yvonne and i i miss you terribly and i'm not going to talk anymore about it because i'm just going to start
0: bawling well you God know bless you girl yeah um I feel like what that night, you and your mom, speaking of bowling, like, I mean, this is another reason. It wasn't just the novelty of having the poet in question's mother perform his work while you sat in the front row, like, sort of like hearing your own stuff come out of your mom's mouth. Um, it was also, you know, at the end, you guys got up and um, talked about your sister and read work, um, you know by her that she had written. So I feel like this, I mean, it's delicate stuff, all this stuff, you know, there's a lot of uh, heartache in life and certainly you've had your fair share, but I don't think it's possible to have a conversation about you as a human being or as a poet um, without talking about your sister and about, I think, you know, your childhood in general was tough, but that was a pivotal, that was a pivotal moment and pivotal loss to say the least. It it was indeed, um,
1: my sister passed away at uh, nine years old uh, from leukemia. Um, and there was no cure in 1968 when she passed. Um, there is now in fact, and you know, the, uh, when you go to the grocery stores and there are those uh, cardboard uh, sort of placards where you can put quarters in uh to to help cancer and and to cure leukemia uh well my mom and I always put quarters in um and now there is a cure but um my my sister was also a poet and um she actually got um uh she actually got published in um uh, 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 highlights yeah, magazine yeah yeah yeah, yeah. highlights elementary like, school like, like, like a kids uh, magazine right and she actually got published um with the urging of uh, my grandmother and what's like really sad about it is that there was um a girl from connecticut who really liked her poem and like wrote her a letter i'm 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 a little i'm i get a little weepy you know when i talk about my sister but what was her name valerie <sighs> valerie um she was my hero. How old were you when she passed away? I was almost seven, and um, she she was my hero. She was she was a, a very wise young girl. A lot of people thought that um, that she was an angel and that she had sort of finally reached nirvana. So, for instance. When I was being a little shit, she didn't have to say a word to me. She would just admonish me with her eyes. Sort of like, cut that shit out. Like, be cool. But she never had to say it. All she had to do was admonish me with her eyes. And I would be like, okay. (laughs) And being her little brother, I also, like, stuck up for her and playground things and you know i would not let anybody uh uh touch my sister uh yeah uh, she 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 was uh she was an incredible being and um i uh i think about her every day um uh, I feel like she's with me every day and everywhere I go, in fact. Uh, shes I think she's like my guardian angel, you know. But let's not
0: make me weep, Brad, please. <laughs> uh, your parents, like you've told me, I've gotten bits and pieces, like, you know, your folks. I remember you telling me, because we talk about baseball. Milo, for those of you listening, is the biggest baseball fan I know, which is not necessarily what I think one would immediately jump to when considering a poet, like most poets you meet on the street like they 're probably not huge sports fans, customarily Cust- but
1: customarily but
0: you love baseball and know more about the game of baseball than any human being i've ever met, and uh, you know bits and pieces over the years you talked about growing up i don 't know if austere is the right world uh, right word, but you know, your parents um, had certain ideas, like I think politically and otherwise, about how you, you were to be raised. And you sort of had to like sneak into the ballpark, right? I, I did, in fact. Yeah, they were uh, very
1: much, they were sort of uh, bohemian, sort of post beatnik, uh, not hippie, but. Uh, just, you know, very organic and they just were not into the commercialism of anything. That's why I could never go to Disneyland or you know, know, we went to when we came down south we went to Joshua Tree (laughs) and they're like, look at the Configurations of the branches of the Joshua tree. I'm like, this is bullshit. Take me to. I want to go to fucking Disneyland, and uh, but um, so no, I, I they they wouldn't take me to to a ball game, um, and so uh, uh, there was a point where I had a friend who said, uh, Oh, we're uh, I'm going to the Giants game uh, next week. And I said, really? And I was like, I, I wanna go. And I said, how are you going? Are you folks taking you? And he goes, no, I'm going with the boys club. I said, oh, the boys club. I said, how do I get into the boys club? <laughs> and he goes, well, you just have to be a boy. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I can do that. <laughs> I, I I am a boy. So then, I asked my mother. I said, um, "I really want to join this this organization, this this community minded organization. It's called the Boys Club," and uh, and uh, and I put it in ways that she could digest it and uh she said well and shes uh, you know i i i said it's 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 about projects it's about picking up litter it's <laughs> it, it's it's ecological it's you know it's 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 a societal uh, type of uh club that that deals with the the betterment of 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 our community." And she goes, okay, you can be in the boys' club. And I'm like, yes. And then I said, well, now that I'm in the boys' club, it's actually a prerequisite that I go to the baseball game because that will teach us about society and um, teamwork and and, uh, teamwork (laughs) and. and 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 all all of yeah working together and uh, uh fundamentals of uh, human strength and so forth and she said oh yeah uh, okay i guess i guess you can go to the ball game if it's a prerequisite and uh and I said, "I'm gonna need some money for the ball game," and and she said, "Okay, I'm giving you five bucks." And I said, uh, "Done. Take, you know, five bucks." So it was it was two bucks for a ticket. Two bucks for a ticket. Two bucks for a ticket. When you know yeah? What year was this? this was 1971 to to, to have our viewers uh, our listeners know how old I am <laughs> it was 1971 Willie Mays was playing in the outfield for the Giants he got traded the uh, the next year uh, everybody in the Bay Area was heartbroken um, but anyways so it was two bucks for the ticket it was like I don't know, like uh, 75 cents for a hot dog. Um, I got a, a bag of peanuts and I got a Coke, uh, all for five bucks damn and then there were these rich kids who left their like half-eaten malts around and i was like scooping up their ice cream malts (laughs) (laughs) what was uh what was the ballpark it was candlestick park in san francisco and um uh we played the Cincinnati Reds when Johnny Bench was all the rage and Pete Rose and, yeah they're, uh, they're those teams in the 70s the Reds were like the, the shit the, the big red machine Tony Perez uh uh all those guys that that was my first ball game and i was uh i was hooked ever since i i, I mean i remember coming on that bus uh from the East Bay and seeing Candlestick Park and it was like a cathedral and then certainly when i first saw the the green of the field
0: it uh, i was just i was hooked and it is and, beautiful and, you know, baseball is beautiful aesthetically in a way that um i think soccer or you know football also is like you know european or whatever non-american football there's something like beautiful about well, the experience of uh of just looking at the field of play <laughs> the field of play just that that
1: perfectly manicured field with the the lines the white lines just perfect and um, and the and the, the sky above and um, uh, yeah it's it's like some type of church or a, or a cathedral that's the only thing i can liken it to um uh, and then actually seeing the players that you've been looking at their baseball cards, and then you actually see them in real life. And, um, yeah, been a hardcore San Francisco Giants fan since
0: 1971, since I was eight years old. Damn. Okay, so... um baseball feels like, I mean, it was obviously just, I, I loved baseball as a kid. I still love sports. Um, but you also, you know, you had the, this, uh, horrible tragedy with your sister. Um, you also had a difficult, there were other parts of your childhood that were difficult. Um, we've talked a little bit about it, but it, again, it's, it's formative. Like your parents, uh, split up at some point. Uh, how old were you? Uh,
1: I was uh, very young, probably two. Oh, okay, um,
0: so they weren't together. They, they were not together when your sister got sick. Uh correct. Okay, and uh, then um, your mother remarried to he who shall not be named, <laughs> and you had a very difficult relationship with your stepfather. Yeah, well, he was
1: an asshole, and uh, uh, he abused me uh, terribly. I was, uh, as you know without being, you know hyperdramatic or something or hyperbolic or something. Uh, i I can I can say that it was probably one of the worst child abuse uh, cases uh, ever. I, I i I don't know how any uh, child could have been more abused uh, physically and and mentally not sexually not sexually uh even though the, the uh, certain counselors and i and uh, i have to put in a word uh for uh, for therapy because i have worked through a lot of this uh through therapy and uh, counseling obviously uh you know through the years and i've 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 worked through it And um, I I certainly don't uh, identify as uh, an abused kid. Uh, I'm past that. Um, And pretty much once I got past that, once I escaped, I literally had a escape. Um, Once I got past that, life has just been cake. It's all just been easy. Uh, Not easy. I mean, life is got its struggles and and the grappling and all of that but um once i got out of that situation i just really felt like you know the world was my oyster well you had like the heaviest of heavy shit happening to you when you were a boy yeah it, it was as heavy as heavy could be you know broken nose and uh, black eyes and I I still got scars all over my body and, uh, and all of that. Uh, however, um, yeah, in, in those days, however, it was, uh, a lot of the, the teachers and other adults and neighbors and so forth, they just looked past it where now, uh, those, you know, that dude would be in prison and I'd be in some foster home or something like that. And your mom was there and knew or didn't know or (sighs) that's that. Yeah. But she uh, and God bless. I I love my mom so, so, so much. Um, She was complicit. However, uh, a lot, uh, most of the activity happened when she wasn't around um i'm i'm going to give her a pass i i just have to even though she knew uh that stuff was going down but she uh, she was trusting uh this guy i don't know why uh, And how old were you like oh jeez well it, it it was a, a period of uh About five years, uh, pretty much from the time I was five, six years, about the time I was like five to like 11.
0: And I remember, um, remember like the only time we ever talked about this, you were like, it came out of a conversation. I think we were having about Buddhism and you were like, yeah, the austerities of Buddhism, like the hardcore Zen meditation, where you like sit, like you go on retreat and you stare at a wall you know all this stuff that people do um you know especially nowadays in the west i think people take these retreats it's like kind of like you know i'm thinking about the ceo of twitter for some reason who like celebrated his 40th birthday by going to like you know uh a 17, 17 hour day. sitting no no went on retreat and i'm <laughs> i'm blanking on the uh the name of Myanmar um yeah what there's two names for it there's Myanmar and then there's Anyway, he goes over there and he's there for like 10 days. And Esalon. Like, yeah, no, but it's over in Asia. Oh, it, it's, it's, Yeah, okay. so, but like Esalon, you know, people go to Esalen and, and do these retreats, but you were like, yeah, fuck that. Like, you know, when I was a kid, my stepdad made me, like, stare at a wall for eight hours. More than eight hours. He'd just
1: make you stand there in, in the corner. Fuck. But, however, Brad, I have to say that, um, it, it ended up like really sort of like helping my creativity because I would standing in in this corner, either it was a, a corner in the garage or it was a corner in my room. And I would create these characters like in the knots of the wood or in the concrete of the, the garage and uh, they were all. I could see all of these faces and all of these characters when, when you looked long enough. And some of these uh, uh, sojourns were sometimes uh, many, 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 many hours. Like sometimes twelve or fourteen hours. And I would have my friends. I would have my group of friends in the corner. And, um, and I could see them so vividly and we would have conversations and, um, and then at a certain point it was like, okay, you got to stand in the corner. And I transmuted that by saying, oh good. I get to go hang out with my friends and I would go back and I would see the same characters and the same people and there were many and there were animals and uh um
0: You're just building your own escape yeah that's like sweet and like you know it, it makes sense uh, in context it's also heartbreaking and it pisses me off that a kid would have to go stare at a wall and make up friends in the wall
1: yeah uh, maybe it uh, maybe it helped my creativity. I You know, I had a lot of time to think. <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> and I remember, too, um, at some point in the conversation, like right around learning about this sort of stuff, I think I looked at you and I said, what was this asshole's name? And you said, I don't say it. You won't say his name. Nope. Ever. Nope. But he's still alive somewhere. Maybe. Who cares? There you go. Um, so, okay. I think maybe now would be a good point to have you read another poem. We'll take a break. We'll have a Milo Martin poem. Then we'll come back and we'll talk some more. Does that sound like a plan? All right. Hey, uh, no? all right, you guys, uh, this is Milo Martin doing a poem that he has never performed before. So, uh, an exclusive. It's another people exclusive. This is Milo performing a poem entitled, You Are Free Now. You
1: are free now. Free to backstroke unadulteratedly into the sea of tranquility. You are free now to bleat amongst the wild-eyed lambs, slumber with the long-lashed cows. The tornadoes can no longer touch you with their swirling irrational power. You are purple-green dragonflies skimming over a peaceful stretch of brown river. Comprehend you can. The complex root systems from the bottom all the way up to the bloom. You are a yellow and blue table runner... Laying beneath a bowl of turning orange and red fruit... Fickle perceptions no longer come into play... For you or for me now... For every aspect of all the aspects... Involving the undeniable truth... Emerge into the limelight... Where blemishes upon the cheek become magnified and to make up smeared lunar volcanoes you are free now you are free now to do as you please now you are thusly unburdened from the overall rigors of everyday sexual dynamic grappling the heart pulsing in a puddle in the middle of the floor Respiratory systems are simple to grasp, you would think You would think You would think it would all be pretty simple to grasp But no, it is required to be a subterfuge of smog clouds and mountains And you, hence, are the gossamer of an uninhabited spiderweb now You are the tender ebb and the odious flow You are free now You are free now to run in a field now Without a bejeweled invisible chain Nor fences nor windmills blocking your way Your forehead no longer wrinkled in consternation No more furrow in your pretty and wholesome brow But there must be a more humane way in which to kill A certain ethics when it comes to butchery You are free now You are free to do as you please now Free to do as you please To float like a dandelion seed in the pesticide breeze to be the lead singer in your own band Free to let go of my drummer calloused hand
0: Alright man, that was, uh, that was spectacular It made me think of Yvonne Just like in terms of time, you know Like hearing you read that and, But you did not write that for her Over the past few days That was something yeah. from your... I, I I did not, however, when I was sifting through
1: my poetry to get ready for your show, I I found that poem and uh it made me think of Yvonne and, and I had actually never read that publicly. Um it's it's almost a forgotten uh poem it's, like an, old, uh, it'll, it's it'll, an old B-side from the Milo Martin archive. Yeah, it's <laughs> an old B-side. It'll be in the new book. It'll be in the new collection. However, which is you should plug it. What's it? What's
0: uh, going to be called? It's uh, called Sublemon Sublime. Okay. Imminent, like due out at some point in the hopefully in, near future. Twenty twenty, baby. Um. So I want to get back to where we were when we got into the poem. Uh, which is talking about like the tough stuff of your youth. Like I think those are, I think stepdad and the loss of your sister are are the two big ones unless I'm missing something. Um, But then there's also baseball, which I think was like a refuge for you. Oh, absolutely. Like a place of play and fun and beauty and uh, just a way to get away. And people uh people I could admire. Right. Uh, your you know, your your heroes. And you where know, we're your where mythical was, heroes. Where was your biological father at this point? Was he in the picture in San Francisco or would, had he left town or uh he'd uh uh moved back
1: east. Um so to give you some idea, uh all of my family's from back east, um and uh, my dad was in the newspaper business uh in Massachusetts and uh, in Amesbury and there was a certain point where he wanted to buy a um a small newspaper and it came down to the newspaper in Yonkers New York um or Seaside California and pop had been to california and he thought well plus he got a i guess a better deal on the, on the newspaper And seaside seaside is sort of like the ghetto of the monterey peninsula even though it's like carmel and pacific grove it and sounds monterey lovely and, seaside <laughs> I mean, it sounds lovely but it's it's pretty much the ghetto of of uh, of the peninsula anyways he bought the seaside new sentinel and i was uh actually conceived on cape cod and and my mom and dad drove out west uh while uh mother was pregnant with me and she actually had a, a couple of serious hemorrhages
0: uh on the way out um and uh wait like in the like on the road trip and like yeah, on, on the road trip like yeah. on i-70 or i-80 or whatever
1: I, i'm not certain I, I i couldn't see the map from where i was
0: <laughs> but i mean jesus like that's uh that's delicate stuff like you pull over to a hospital or like you know
1: yeah um at a, cer- a certain point she spent some time in uh indianapolis land of my youth yes and
0: uh indian uh, no place <laughs> they call I it. never heard that. Yeah, they call it Naptown. They call it Indian No Place. It's come of age since I was there, but I mean, it was a, it was very much a cow town mm. when I was a kid. You could walk across the entire downtown in like seven minutes. Ah, and Indianapolis is the only city west of the or east of the Mississippi that's not on a river. It's literally just on a spit of land, so it doesn't have the same kind of dynamic. Like Pittsburgh, you've got like the rivers and. You, know, right. you think of all the cities east of the Mississippi, you would have to have a waterway for trade, and right. but Indianapolis bucked that trend, and it's just, I think it, it was you know, landlocked. Landlocked and really smack dab in what I guess would pass for the geographical center of the state, ah. um, but not very much to it, at least when I was there, and I think it's, you know, it's grown up a bit since then, but. Uh, I, I, I've
1: actually uh, not been to Indianapolis uh, since I was a zygote in my mother's <laughs> belly, and she was hemorrhaging. I, I, I've actually not visited that town. So. Well, there's still time, Milo. Uh, there's still time, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, Indianapolis and New Orleans; uh, those are uh, two towns in America uh, that I've always wanted to see. In fact,
0: well, well, New Orleans is also my uh, family. My parents are from Louisiana, so that's
1: right. You would um, love New Orleans. I—that's what everybody keeps saying, and for just for some reason, I just haven't made it there maybe i would maybe i would just perish you there. would never come back i, I would probably <laughs> just move in I, I, would, <laughs> I would just crumple and perish in in in, in a new orleans uh, extravaganza
0: so you okay so let's get let's get the road trip to california you get mm-hmm. to seaside your dad mm-hmm. has this uh, small town newspaper mm mm-hmm. Um, and I want to trace it still exists. The seaside new Sentinel, it still exists, but he doesn't, he's not, no, no. no. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that time. I guess you would have been just a baby then, but also just to like go back in time a little bit and to retrace geography because you bounced around the Bay area. You lived in a lot of different places. You lived all over the Monterey peninsula You lived closer to San Francisco if you were going to Candlestick, right? Did you live up in the East
1: Bay and and San Francisco? And then, uh, like I said, all my family is from back east, so I spent a lot of time um, in Massachusetts. I spent uh, time outside of uh, Baltimore uh, in a, a town called Crofton. Um, my dad got a teaching job in Toronto, uh, spent a, a good amount of time there. Like a university teaching job? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What school? It was, um, Sheridan College. Sheridan College, uh, which is, uh, right outside of Toronto. It's pretty much, a, it's, it's a part of Toronto now, but, um, and so that was really weird for me being a Californian kid, but I
0: had to escape the house of pain. Right. So that, and, like you're what so, age when, you know, your five years of hell finally end and you just decide to get the fuck out. like yeah. w- Talk about that. Cause that escape is pivotal. It, yeah. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it, it,
1: it changed the trajectory of my life. Um, so yeah, so I was like, you know, 11 and this is a very strange, uh, turn of events. But, um, um, uh, there was a, a, friend of my mother's, um, who had a child and her child wanted to go see her father and they they were split, and, and she wanted to go see her father. And she had a, a disastrous experience with her father, and her father was just a monster, supposedly. And, uh, and she was just begging to come back, and she came back. And uh, I, uh, being a, a, a clever boy, looked at the psychology of all of that, and said i want to go see my father back east and my mother said okay you can see what kind of monster your father is and i was to be there for 2 weeks and and he was uh he was newly married uh to uh his student a nineteen-year-old girl from <laughs> from one of his classes, and oh. and so so I was supposed to be there for a couple of weeks, and um and uh, I ended up telling Pop. I said I I I can't go back to that place. I can't go back to the house of pain. I did you I, tell him what happened? Well, I I I was not explicit because I was actually threatened with death. If I told anybody anything about what had occurred in the house of pain. So, uh, but I pretty much let him know in very general terms, cause I was <laughs> frightened, you know, um, um, I told him in general terms that I I just couldn't go back and can I please stay here with you. And um and God bless him, um he he took me in uh you know with this 19-year-old girl. What was her name? Do we know? Her name was Gay. Okay and um i wasn't expecting that but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah not like uh mr taylees uh
0: right that's the only uh, other
1: gay i've ever heard it was gay Talese uh, gay taylees who taught at usc right uh um, did you ever meet him oh yeah oh yeah okay. and 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 in fact we had many conversations and um in fact i was uh on the uh upper west side of new york city uh A few years ago, and I'm just smoking a cigarette out on the street, uh, and along comes Mr. Dapper. Yeah, he's always dressed. He's He's got the hat. He's got the suit. Oh, just super styly. You know, the the, the tie or the the
0: ascot or (laughs) whatever. Well, his dad was a tailor, I want to say. Oh. I want to say that's where it comes from. He grew up. His dad—I could be wrong, but it was something like that. He either made clothes or he was a tailor, but he had that stuff around him as a kid. I see. Yeah he he was uh, he was a, a stylish
1: uh, a man as I've ever seen in my life, and of course he, he comes uh, uh, comes bouncing down the street, and I said, Mister Taillez, and he sort of stops and looks, and was biggest honor of my life he said oh mr martin i said wow (laughs) gay Talese knows who i am and remembers me right and he goes he said um and uh what the fuck are you doing smoking cigarettes is that what he said yeah (laughs) what did you say i said i don't know (laughs) he goes "Put, put put them away Put them away. But we had a, we had a very nice uh, conversation for you know probably ten minutes. It was uh, really wonderful to um, to hear him speak. Like like most of our profs at uh, SC, they were all just so eloquent, and they were all just so knowledgeable. And you just you just sort of thought, I want to be like that person. I want to be able to analyze and think um and, and 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 be witty uh like like that person like all these people uh you know, Steve Wasserman right the uh editor of the LA Times book review I would just marvel just to hear him speak or uh, Mel Shabelson or Cubby um uh, or uh Arum Saroyan. Right. Uh you know, these the like old school guys who were just so informed and uh cool and old school and uh um and like I I said about you when we hang out i always feel edified and and we we got edified in that program i mean we got to uh to learn from uh some of the best in in the business Uh, i mean the real cultural literary
0: heroes so i want to before we lose the thread i want to talk more about uh, I guess to, Toronto is that where you wound up yeah I yeah and Oh you, yeah that's where we went that's from, where we were no, so no, yeah. I don't want to lose the story because oh, okay. people are probably wondering what happened next but you go to uh, Toronto you live with your dad and gay not gay to but gay the 19 <laughs> year old co-ed <laughs> your stepmom <laughs> yeah <laughs> right wa- and,
1: walking around the house naked yeah that was oh uh, my yeah, god like oh Durf, okay, like wow, yeah,, uh, <laughs> and then, at the same time, I spent uh, a lot of time with my grandparents who lived outside of Baltimore and my my family uh, I'm still uh very uh tight with they all pretty much live in jersey and uh and d c and 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 the uh surrounding areas and um but what was cool was. That even though I was a fish out of water in Toronto, being a California kid, my dad always brought us back to California in the summer. So I spent all my summers uh, on the Monterey Peninsula.
0: Oh, wow. And, and it, he and, came back to him when he was off school? Yeah.
1: When he, yeah. So he had his summers off, which my grandfather thought he just got the teaching job uh, just because he was lazy and wanted the summers off. It's not a bad strategy. It's it's a great (laughs) strategy. I thought it was a great strategy. Um, And God love my grandfather. uh, One of the largest influences in my life. And uh, not to mention my um, my cousin Merle, uh, Merle Curdy, who. uh, won a Pulitzer prize. I uh, he was a social
0: historian and he and my grandfather were very, very close. So, okay. Cause yeah, this is another, I think this is another pillar. Like when it comes to the formation of you, um, both as a person and as a, uh, an artist is Merle Curdy. Um, you know, you escape the house of pain, you go to live with your dad and then you're also, uh, interacting more with your East coast fam. Yeah. Your paternal grandfather is the one you're talking about. Correct. Um, Do they know? I guess the question, I mean, your dad sort of knew that things weren't going well uh, out West with your stepdad. They had to have known, right? They had to have known he was uh, mistreating you. Uh, Yeah. But at the same time, I,
1: uh, I, I really kept it uh, secretive. Uh, If there, uh, any of my family back East, Really um whom I just saw in New York uh for thanksgiving or New Jersey and the delaware shore um but I don't think anyone in my family knows um really no i i have never confided uh with anyone i I think I've been general. I think I said, you know, there was some abuse issues or something like that. Right. But uh, no one really knows, you know, how hardcore it was because, you know, I, like I said, I was threatened with death if I was to tell anyone. And, And as a kid, you just don't know if someone's like listening or someone might come after you or, or hurt your mom or, or hurt a family. Hurt exactly. So, um, so really none of my family knows, uh, any, any of this. I, I, I think just, just to a very general point. But like I said, I, I don't identify with that. I, I, I left it behind. Like yeah. I, I got, I got out of hell and I came to heaven and I was like, wow, it's really
0: awesome here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, but I want to ask, uh, in terms of how you behaved as a kid, once you move out east and you're hanging around, like kids who go through a lot of shit, they can sometimes act out. They can sometimes be violent themselves or trouble at school or you know, oh. all that kind of stuff. Like, did any of that manifest? Like, you're such a happy, like you're one of the happiest people I know, like, you know, most positive, consistently positive human beings that I've ever met. Um, which feels heroic to me considering all that you had to travel through. Um, you know, not everybody emerges intact or with, uh, the lights still on. You know, so I guess I'm curious to know how you think that happened. Is it just genetics? You think you have a naturally uh, positive disposition? Because I think that that is a part of it sometimes. People, I know people who are just so fucking happy. And I think part of it's just their biology. But I also think there's work that can be done and decisions that are made. And some of it comes down to will, um, you know, and, and just how you decide you want to live your life. I suppose. I suppose
1: it's a, it's a survivor thing. Uh, You know, when I was uh, in the house of pain, I had to um, uh, transmogrify, uh, um, transmute the situation um, so that it was positive. Like I said, standing in the corner i made it a positive thing you know so i i learned how to be positive through adversity and i always have and um it's not to say that i i wasn't in a a bunch of fights i used to beat the shit out of kids you know I used to take out my aggression. I was a a fighter up until I was uh, 25 years old. I got into like a lot of fights and uh, I only got my ass beat once. And that was the very last fight (laughs) I, I ever had. And then I became a pacifist. I mean, I got my ass kicked. I got it kicked bad. Where was this? This was in Monterey. Okay. And, uh, oh yeah, I got stitches. I, well, this dude, like you can see my rings. Like I wear a bunch of rings. Well, this dude had a bunch of rings and they was pretty much like brass knuckles. And, and he was bigger than I was, but I was like a lot bigger, but I was cocky and never, never been beaten in a fight. And thought I could take him. And it was actually, uh, it was about student government. I was actually the, the president of my student council, uh, at Monterey Peninsula college. And, uh, we got into a, a political, um, political discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it, it, and we, it ended up coming to blows. And, uh, and he he beat my ass. I I got in I think uh 3 licks and he got in 5. But once he cut my forehead open with one of his rings it just started spurting blood and then the fight was over cuz I couldn't see and I I just pulled away. Yeah. And it was actually at that point where uh my life changed because I I thought, I, I don't want to be a, a caveman. I, you know, I, I don't want to resort to this uh, 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 swampy violence. And plus, I came from violence, and I said, there's a, a point where I have to change the, the, the circle of, of this. And um, it was at that point... It took my ass getting kicked to become a pacifist, and then uh, and then years later I became a vegetarian, and I, I've been a vegetarian for 28 years because I I abhor violence so much. Um, uh, this world is is just terribly violent. It you know, really gets me down. But I made that commitment um, at 25 years old uh, never to have another fight, never to be involved in another uh, physical fight. And And there's been many times where it got really,
0: really close. Well, like when we were at the Dodgers, uh, the NLCS at Dodger (laughs) Stadium. Or no, was it? Yeah, no, it was Dodger Stadium, NLCS, NLCS, Brewers versus the Dodgers. Milo and I are sitting in the stadium and Milo's wearing head to toe like San Francisco Giants gear. Which, for people who are not baseball fans, the Dodgers and the Giants are arch rivals, like <laughs> deepest enemies. And uh, who was it that you were calling a rental punk? Manny Machado. Yeah. So the Dodgers had a player that they had signed midseason. They're basically renting him for a few months to play on their team, and then he was going to go. And you shouted rental punk <laughs> repeatedly, and some like marine sitting behind us took issue with it. Now, I thought... We were going to get our asses kicked. I I did too. And then I remember you kind of talked back to him a little bit. And then at some point, he was like, "I'm going to kick your fucking ass," and you were like, "I'm a pacifist, man." <laughs> he also, yeah, I said, yeah. He, he he said
1: something that was uh, like almost quasi poetic. He, he said something like, "You know, in your heart of hearts, that I can kick your motherfucking ass." <laughs> and i was just like well you know this is just a game anyways and you know he's he's not even really your player you know and so what's what's the big deal and he goes you know i can you know and i was just like well um i'm a pacifist so i'm not <laughs> into fighting uh, you know and and then and then he goes oh and i bet you suck dick too did he yes, he did, oh man, and okay. I said, well, in fact, I don't, but uh but if know. I change my mind, you'll be the
0: first yeah. to know
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh it, at dodger stadium uh i I've been you know just pummeled uh well they, they did they kill somebody or they beat some guy within an inch of his life yeah, it was uh the second let me see it was opening day two thousand eleven. After the San Francisco Giants had won their very first World Series in 2010. And it was um, a paramedic, uh, an ambulance driver from Santa Cruz, who had come down to Dodger Stadium to see opening day. And thugs just beat the shit out of him. And I've been... And like to the point where he was like in a coma. Right. And he's still not right. Over God, a fucking baseball God, game. God bless him. You know, out, out in the uh, parking lot. I have been called out in the 24 years I've been in L.A. I've probably been called out uh, to fight uh, at Dodger Stadium uh, six times. I'm a shit thrown at me, uh, peanuts, beer, you know, but literally about six times where uh someone says, "Let's go let's throw down i'm like i'm not I'm not doing that." Like why? I don't even know you. Like <laughs> we should you know, at least we should at least introduce
0: ourselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or we,
1: maybe we should have some beef. which well, just because I'm wearing this color—that's so stupid. Well, that's the weird prejudice. Uh, prejudicial element of sports that really sucks. Right. It's like if you're from here and you're wearing that color then you're bad. Right. But if you're from here and you're of our tribe and you're wearing the proper uniform then you're cool. People need to grow up. It's, it, it's just that's the, the wicked uh, aspect of sports and I actually wrote a, a paper uh, uh, at San Francisco State uh, talking about, so wait, uh, you were at
0: Monterey Peninsula college, Monterey Peninsula, to college, San Francisco state. Then I went to San Francisco state and then you went to USC for graduate school. Correct. Okay. Um, I want to talk about Merle Curdy ah. because, uh, you know, like, I, and I want to get to like, how did you form as a writer? When did you start getting into writing your own poetry? When did you know you were going to be on this path? Because listen, it's not an easy path to be a poet. Um, it has its its uh, merits and its upsides, to be sure, but it's not for everybody. It's not for the faint of heart, right? I mean, you know, you have to be—I um, think you have to be cut from a very certain kind of cloth uh, in order to be able to sustain um, a career as a poet and to, and to really do it. Um, so can you talk about how you got started and how Merle— influenced you and what, what what other influences were there that got you going? Well, um, yeah, Merle Curdy, uh,
1: I think he won the Pulitzer in 1946, uh, um, for, um, the, the growth of American social thought. So he was the first historian, to actually track social thought as opposed to just dates and events and, and uh, transgressions and developments and, uh, and so forth. He actually tracked the evolution of American social thought as, as the country grew, and he was the, the, the first to do so. And that's why he won the prize, I I suppose, because it hadn't been done. Um, He uh, also was a pacifist, uh, as was my grandfather. And they were very close, Ted Martin and Merle Curdy. Um, And Merle was leading peace marches during World War II, which wasn't very popular because pretty much everyone was in.
0: Right. And, That's like the one war where it's like, okay. Yeah.
1: You know. Yeah. And, and, and here was Merle leading uh peace marches with uh, like 42 people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, he was also uh, the president of the American historical society. And there was a point where, um, it was very evident to Merle that uh people of color were not being uh admitted to the american historical uh society um and it was a pretty much an old white boy network and um and it, uh, uh, you know uh, s- someone would put in an application and these old white guys were saying no i don't feel that he has the proper credentials and etc cetera, etc cetera, when in fact it was just straight up racism and merle being the president said at a certain point, okay, so this is going to end. There are so many qualified candidates and there are only white men in this society and this has got to change. And if it doesn't change, first of all, I'm going to resign. And second of all, I'm going to blow the whistle on on this uh, injustice. Merle was all about justice and um was also, also a, a a communist. Um and um and it was at this point that um people of of color were uh then uh, admitted to the uh, society and especially you know those uh, very qualified who had been held out for years and years and years and merle changed all of that he put his foot down and um and and really
0: turned that on its head. So Um, how old, how old was he when you met him? Like, when did he come into your life? Oh, heck. Um, I
1: didn't meet Merle until, uh, until pretty late in his life. I always, um, spoke with him on the phone. He, uh, uh, he taught at Columbia, uh, in, in New York city. And then, um, and then got the, um, uh, got the job at University of Wisconsin at Madison, and ended up there as a as a professor emeritus. And w- where I visited him, um, uh, so he and my grandfather uh, would speak every Sunday, and anytime I was with my grandfather, I would speak with Merle. But we didn't spend a lot of time uh, together until my grandfather passed and then we became very very close we wrote letters i still have all of his letters he he typed them all on a typewriter sure um he um uh included footnotes (laughs) uh the the, with white out yeah uh the the whole thing but he really encouraged uh my poetry he was a fan of poetry in his, um, in his spare time, he hipped me to Elizabeth Bishop. Um, and, uh, yeah, I would send him my poetry. He would ask me to send him, uh, my poetry and, and he liked it. And he actually referred to me and he had this very, had this very soft voice, Merle Curdy. And he said, If I were to somehow categorize you as a poet, I w- would say that, that you're a mystic and that you deal in the metaphysical realm with your poetry.
0: And you're like, Merle, I'm just I just dropped acid. I've been doing a lot of acid. <laughs> I'm like what are you, twenty years old when this is happening? <laughs> or a teenager? What are you? a, a
1: little older. Okay. A yeah, little a little older. But uh I spent some good time with him up in uh in the lovely town of uh Madison, uh which is located on an Isthmus between Lake Monona and Lake Mendota. Sure, yeah. Uh yeah, well, cool. Uh, they they call it like the Berkeley of the Midwest. Okay. Uh, that's um, that's where he ended up. And uh, interestingly, at San Francisco State, I'm in a I'm in a class, uh, a sociology class, um, and there's a professor there. Um, and the very first session, I thought I'd you know show off a little bit, and and I raised my hand and I said, uh, Pro- uh, Professor Miller, I said, Professor, will will we be studying any Merle Curdy this semester? <laughs> and he like jerks his head and says how do you know Merle Curdy? How do you know the work of Merle Curdy? And I said, uh, he's my cousin. And he said, well, uh, Wait,
0: was he your, is he your cousin or is he your grandfather's friend? No, my grandfather's co- we're cousins. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Merle's my cousin. Okay. And, um, I said, yeah, uh, Merle Curdy's my cousin. And he said, uh, well, we'll, we'll talk after class. And I said, okay, and I'm thinking this is going to, you know, get me, you know, gold star or get me points, you know, and we talked after class. He said, I was Merle Curdy's assistant at Columbia. (laughs) And I said, and I'm thinking, yes, like this is a real in this is a, this is amazing. And what ended up happening was that he was very resentful of Merle, and and being Merle's assistant, and that he was living in the shadow of Merle. And when when Merle got the the job at uh, uh, Madison, he asked. Uh, Miller to come along and he said, you know, not a chance in hell. Am I going to continue to be Merle Curdy's assistant and known as Merle Curdy's assistant? I'm going to be my own man. And then he ended up coming from Columbia to San Francisco state. Got it. And he was so hard on me i you know i like to think i'm you know, a good writer i you know write good papers and uh first paper uh he gave me a c minus and i went well a c minus i don't think i've ever received a c minus and um i said so um what's with the c minus why why does this deserve a c minus so Merle Curdy wouldn't write drivel like that.
0: <laughs> and I, Academia can be a uh, uh, it can be a, like a, a bitch. Yeah, it can. Be, there are a <laughs> lot of feelings. Yeah,
1: and he really held it personally that we were related, and that he had very strong negative feelings about Merle. Um, only because he was his assistant, and he he, he wasn't going anywhere under the uh, the 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 wing of Merle. Even though I'm sure Merle was incredibly uh, encouraging and and friendly. I mean, he was one of the kindest men I've ever known. Also, this. Merle was a really hardcore atheist, okay? And we would have conversations about God. Um, And um, being an atheist, uh, he was one of the most godly men I ever met in my life. Hmm. And uh, when we would talk— Like how so? In his in his countenance, in his way, in his peacefulness, uh, uh, in his you know causes, uh, his justice, in his speech, in his manner, he was just a very godly man. And we would talk about God because I am about God, not any one type of God,
0: but just like the god I'm like that You're like god the, the overhead projector and that's what you always call it in your poetry yeah i love that and i'm kind of with you like i'm not a religious person per se but like uh you know I have, I have i've had to confront how i actually feel as a parent because your kids ask you well, what am i going to say you know like right you don't want to you don't want to uh mislead them or bullshit them you or know did you, you grow up catholic. uh catholic Catholic, yeah. But right. I just say... Uh, Italian Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I say God is everything. God is everything. It's in, and with Merle Curdy, yeah. it's like God is nothing. I think it's like, you know, it's one or the other. For me, it's, it's everything. Whatever the hell this is, if that's the word you want to use to describe it. But uh, the thing about it is that it sounds like Merle, even though he was a professed atheist, had a, like, holy reverence for existence... If Absol- that's, You know, if you want to characterize it as such, absolutely. that's all that I'm really talking about. Like, uh, I- absolutely.
1: And, and he being a scientist, yeah. you know, he sort of looked through that. However, when we would speak about God, he would concur with me when I phrased it as the force in nature he would go for that. Yeah. he would say, yeah, I, I can go for the force in nature. Right. And, and he would absolutely, uh, uh, capitulate, not capitulate, but, uh, accept. Ex he would accept the force in nature. When I put it that way, he was like, yeah, I, I can, I can be down with that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's where I'm at, you know, just, yeah, some, uh, it's a little humility. There's something bigger. There's something's going on. What the fuck is this?
1: Well, you know what? It's like, like I, I I think, like, do skyscrapers just, like, grow out of the ground? Like, do they just, like, just grow out of the ground like a redwood tree? Like, no. I mean, there's obviously some... Forces at work. Design, manufacturing, conceptualization, uh, uh, architectural design, all of that. And I, I sort of, without uh, really getting into it, I just don't, I, I just don't think that redwoods just grew with, without there being some type of, some type of plan or, uh, some type of design, I'm, I, I certainly don't like. Uh, the term intelligent design because it's been associated with people. I I don't care for, Uh, but I, I, I feel like the elements on this earth are so, so perfect that there's just got to be uh, some force Maybe an alien force. I'm I'm not certain, but it's so perfect and so symmetrical, and our bodies are just these miracles of all these organs and arteries and all this stuff. I just don't know if it just just happened. Like that's the part I just think: how can it, all this perfection? Oh just oh it sorta of happened. Just uh, accident. Just acc- accident we yeah. came out of a muddy ooze and <laughs> and, 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 and and everything's perfect. Yeah. So that I mean that's what I consider.
0: Um and also yeah. I, I think too, and maybe you have a different experience, but I think for me too, it's just like an acknowledgement of how little I know. Like I don't fucking know. Right. We, maybe maybe hey listen, maybe there it's just literally this crazy accident. Um a sequence of unbelievably, um, what's the word? Unlikely, but an extraordinary um, happenings that led to this. It would have to be an incredible number. And I wouldn't know because I wasn't around and I don't have a brain big enough to compute all that. Likewise, I don't have a brain big enough to compute um, exactly what the hell is going on. So I think like Dig. I, th- to, to acknowledge know. that there's more than meets the eye, I think is just that's kind of where I end because it's just like it's a gesture of humility. Like, hey, listen, this is uh, yeah. pretty extraordinary yeah. that I,
1: we're sitting here. Absolutely. And, and I don't purport to know anything either. Um, but I do consider it a lot. Yeah. I consider
0: it like every day. So uh, how much did drugs play a role, psychedelic drugs in particular, um, in the formation of your God concept? Did they play any role? Absolutely. Um,
1: It was through the uh, use of hallucinogens, uh, especially LSD, um, where I was... Able to see through a, a veil. It was like the veil lifted, and I could see the patterns in life. I could see the natural patterns and the the forces and, and the forces in plants and so forth. And and it was a very. Very enlightening. Um, I, I didn't take drugs just just for kicks or whatever. I mean, uh, I, I I did them as uh, sacred uh, adventures, uh, exercises. It's not to say that I didn't have a shitload of fun and laughed my ass off a lot of times, or you know, got got completely nutty. Uh, but for the most part. I always considered hallucinogens uh, to be uh, uh, a sacred practice, and where I could see the quote "God" unquote in things, I could see it. My, I could see plants heaving. I could, I could understand the respiratory systems of leaves and and so forth uh under the influence of uh of hallucinogens um a uh, huge uh, uh part of my formation uh was uh was uh was lsd and and psilocybin and so forth um i i, I wouldn't be the thinker i am today i i I wouldn't. I wouldn't be writing poetry like I am today. I. I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't understand what I understand.
0: Um, I truly believe that. Uh, Including uh, understanding how little you understand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, right. Um. Well, I don't want to um take up too much of your time, but I do want to ask. Um, I want to say there's a good story. Didn't you meet Allen Ginsberg at some point in San Francisco? I remember you telling me that years ago? I I did meet Allen Ginsberg.
1: Um, I uh, went to a, went to a reading of his at City Lights Books in San Francisco uh, for uh, his tour of uh, the collection White Shroud and of course i you know he was my hero and um and i brought all my little pocket books like the the city lights editions those little black and white uh, uh pocket books and i had about six of them or something and i brought them and uh and uh sort of was and it wasn't like a really big event. I don't know how many, maybe thirty people there, forty. I don't know, but it wasn't a big event. Though well, Allen Ginsberg was massive, and we're talking about eighty. Let me see. I think eighty-eight. I think it was eighty-eight, and um, and I was at San Francisco State, and um. And I, I came up to his table to have him sign my books, and me being, uh, let me see, what was I, twenty five, twenty five years old. Uh, he just took one look at me and he said, oh, "Why don't you come uh, come over here behind the table and, and sit beside me?" <laughs> and I said, Jesus. "I said." Sure thing. I, I was terribly intimidated. I mean, he was my poetic hero. Yeah. Uh, Anne Sexton, uh, not including she was passed away at that point, uh, but he was my my poetic hero. And and we just started speaking, and like there were like two or three people in line, and they had their book signed, and then it was just Alan and I. And um, and I I I said um, I said would would you would you sign this one particular poem which is called the rain on Daswamada? Um, it's about him uh, in India on a balcony watching uh, a, a half-bodied man drag himself across the wet um cobbles i I thought it was one of the most beautiful poems i'd ever read like his observational poems I, i really really dug and he goes you know uh I read that poem last night in my hotel at the Fairmont for the first time in about twenty five years i I literally uh read that last night, so you're you're just you're just killing me i I can't believe that you brought that up. I, I call bullshit <laughs> as a matter of fact young man yeah yeah <laughs> and then then I asked him to sign um the the poem uh, Lysergic Acid which was an acid trip and and we discussed LSD together and he goes well you know that this was about a bummer trip right and I said doesn't seem like it to me and he goes this was like a really bad trip this was a very negative dark trip i said i i never viewed the poem as that i you know um and and he he signed it uh uh don't be put off by this bummer that's what he (laughs) do you still have it i still have uh the book don't be put off by this bummer i still have a few that he signed and then uh then we're we're talking, and he goes so just like right out. He says, "So what do you do for sex?" <laughs> and I went, um, um, I, oh, I, I, yeah, and then I started talking about I, I, sh- I diverted the conversation into JG Ballard's Crash where uh he would set these situations up uh for cars to crash and he would ejaculate Wait, do you you know this book yeah, yeah yeah and so and he go then he just goes back and he says so what do you do for sex and and, and he says um he says animals insects cars <laughs> And actually, that's when I brought up the J.G. Ballard uh, book, Oh Cars. And he goes, where is your car? Do you want to go to your car? And I went, "Um." And no, I actually came with a friend. And, and and we talked about a number of other things. And he goes, well, listen, I'm at the Fairmont. Do you want to go smoke a joint? And I went, well, okay, I know what that would entail. And uh, so, yes, would I love to spend, you know, face time with my poetic hero at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco? Of course I would. But I also know, I also knew what that would entail. Right. (laughs) Because he was pretty explicit. Sure. So I said, I I thank you very much, Mr. Ginsburg. I I really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to gonna pass and he goes well i'm in room uh 311 uh, at the fairmont if you change your mind <laughs> i said thank you i appreciate it and uh, that was my time with alan ginsburg but i actually saw alan ginsburg do a poem at candlestick park no shit
0: no shit like for a game before a game um this is a very san francisco moment i feel like i don't think that happens in most cities well, there was there was uh, it was supposed to be a poetic series
1: um, uh, with the uh, San Francisco uh, Literary Society partnering uh, with the Giants. And they thought that might be a,
0: a, a nice cultural thing for baseball. Feel, that feels like the old San Francisco. You know, like I feel like nowadays with like so can, I don't think that's happening anymore. I don't think you are reading poems before Giants games. Well, okay. Well, it only happened that
1: one time. Oh, okay. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> so I'm I'm working at Candlestick Park at, at, uh, in the box office. And we get the stat sheet, you know, before every game, you know, what's the estimated attendance, what we're playing, the ceremonial first pitch, and certain statistics about the every game. And I pull my stat sheet, and it says – uh opening ceremony and a uh, um, uh, ceremonial first pitch Allen Ginsberg. And I went, oh, fuck. Really? And so I said to my boss, I said, listen, I know this is like, you know, I mean, that's when it's the busiest is right before the game starts. Sure. I said, listen, I have to go see Allen Ginsberg. I uh, and and if you don't let me, I guess you can just fire me or something. But I have to go see my poetic hero. And he goes, if it means that much to you, uh, go do it. So, you know, and uh, so I you know, timed it perfectly,
0: got in there. And first of all, I was thinking, well, what is he going to read? He's going to read a new poem called uh, Milo's Penis, I think, that he wrote. <laughs> Which, frankly, was not a great fit for the families in attendance. (laughs) Milo's Silo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Milo's Silo. Um, So, yeah, I'm thinking all these things, like, what poem could he read? And he goes to the pitcher's mound. And there's a microphone out there. And he goes into this uh, poem, uh... And it goes something like that. I I think the name of the poem is Hobom. I'm pretty sure the name of the poem is Hobom. But he just pulls up to the microphone and just goes, who needs the bomb? I need the bomb. You want the bomb? No one needs the bomb. I want the bomb. You want the bomb? You want me to give you the bomb? Ho bomb, ho bomb, ho bomb. You want the bomb? I don't need the bomb. You need the bomb. Ho bomb, ho bomb. Ho, and it just starts getting punk rock. <laughs> you know, he's just 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 railing. Yeah. And and then the jeers start to come. It was a Friday night game. Right. And those Friday night games at Candlestick were crazy because everybody was drunk. Everyone right, was out of right, control. Right, right, right. And um, and the jeers and the taunts start to come, and then the booze, uh-huh. and he just keeps hitting it. Bomb, bomb, who bomb? Who bomb? You bomb? Me bomb? You bomb? Me bomb? No bomb? No bomb? No bomb? Yes bomb! 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 bomb. And the, the 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 booze just come raining down, raining down, and he literally drops the mic and walks off the mound, just to jeers and insults and booze. Like the whole place is just booing him. Like he had to have known that it was going to happen mercilessly. I, I he was he well he was so punk rock. He was so awesome. He was such a. Uh, uh such an innovator and he was so bold, you know, and he, you know, and all of his poetry was, was so proclamational and big and and um and 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 magnanimous, you know, he was just he was just you know, and and really controversial. I mean, his stuff was really controversial. So he he leaves the mound. And, and he just like leaves just like, just like in disdain, like just in complete disdain. And, and then, uh, there's like a representative of the giants, uh, came out and sort of said, um, you still have to throw out the first pitch. <laughs> so he's like, okay. He goes out to the mound. He's he's got a f- full suit on and a tie. Oh, really? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I was thinking full... white robes or something, but no. No, full suit and tie and like, you know, wingtip shoes. And he goes out to the mound and you know, you talk about like players playing with anger. You know, yeah. And he went out there And he just fired a strike. Did he really? Oh, he and he actually I have a photo of him. I have a photo of this. He's actually airborne and just whipping this strike. And then everybody went crazy (laughs) because this old Jewish man from Patterson, uh, this old Jewish homosexual from Patterson, New Jersey, just throws a complete, you know, blazing fastball right into the mitt of the catcher. And then. Everyone cheered. Everyone freaked out, and of course, I was completely freaked out by the whole thing. I was just like, "I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you more now. I love you more now. Now I love you more." And and it was it was, uh, it was uh, quite incredible. And I will uh, uh, send you the photo. I actually have a very large uh, version. Of it that my boy uh, Mikey Lukovic, uh, uh, lifelong Cubs fan, uh, but we did a baseball show a, a few years ago and like uh, a poetry show. Yeah, we did a uh, yeah a, sh- a show about uh, baseball and poems and 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 stories and and so forth. And actually, that was one of my stories. Oh, really? This, this is actually an abbreviated uh, version of, of the story, but um, so Mikey. Actually found the photo and blew it up, and it's probably about sixteen inches by uh, eight inches. It's almost like a small poster, but he actually researched it and found that shot of him whipping this ball into home plate. It was it was one of the most glorious experiences. Uh, i've ever had uh especially synthesizing baseball and poetry. i was gonna say you're, you're not gonna yeah. you'll be
0: hard-pressed to find another yeah. moment that does that heavenly as perfectly heavenly um well dude it's great to finally have you on the show uh as i was telling you i think before we came on i don't think the library of interviews would be complete without you so i'm, I'm like re- there's a part of me that's relieved like we got this on tape milo's in the in the can now um it's you know It's been, in Los Angeles, not the easiest town in the world. Maybe it's just not easy to do friendships as adults as it was when you were kids. But it's always been a comfort to me to have you in L.A. um, And to just know, like, Milo's just solid. You know, I've got a buddy here in town. We go way back. And uh, to have you on the last episode of the year, holiday season, and uh, heading into 2020. Should be an interesting year. Stuff coming up, right? It's going to be... Volatile Times in America. So um happy holidays and all the best in the new year and thanks for coming over to uh talk with me. Uh I'm honored, Mr. Listy.
1: Absolutely honored. and I love you and I, I love your podcast. They're, they're really really well done and uh I'm honored to uh to be here uh with you and um I love you and your family and also your mind.
0: All right, buddy. Well, um, we will have you close things out with another poem. Okay. Uh, go Brewers. All right, guys. That is Milo Martin. You can get his poetry collection. It is called Poems for the Utopian Nihilist out there now from Echo Park Press He's got a forthcoming collection called Sub Lemon Sublime. Keep an eye out and uh, also keep an eye out for that art book that he's doing with Gigi Spratly and Jack Waltrip. Milo Martin. You can find him on Facebook. I think he's got a page over there. Happy Holidays to everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show, spreading the word. If this is a tough time of year for you, hang in there. It's almost over. It'll be a new year, 2020. A lot hangs in the balance. But uh, let's think positive. Shall we? And uh, let's have another poem from Milo to close out 2019 on the Other People podcast. This one is called At the Precipice of Everything. It is the first poem in uh, the upcoming collection, Sublime. And Sublime. Again, it is called At the Precipice of Everything. And uh, here you go, guys. This, once again... ...is uh, my buddy, Milo Martin.
1: At the precipice of everything... ...we will French kiss frenetically... ...falling into an earthquake crack... ...urgently examining the dark universes of our mouths at the speed of who gives a feathery flip now and forever. At the precipice of everything, a murmuration of starlings will fold majestically up into the sun, a sky parade of flying saucers celebrating a silver jubilee, and we will light a Christmas bonfire in the middle of July. At the numchucks of everything, we will look at one another with slightly watering eyes, wonder what the hell just happened, and if we could have done anything differently to have produced a more compassionate result. At the leviathan of everything... A double rainbow will transmute into a ghostly ring around the moon. The volcano will shoot its fiery load all over the frozen kitchen floor. Vesuvian lovers will hold one another with plastered eyes clenched tight. The Titanic breaking in half like the dripping dorsal fin of a shark. Reaching up into the starry Atlantic night like the extended middle finger from Neptune showing the public at large the ill effects of not respecting the sea. The rapture of everything. Hedgehogs will peek out of their nest holes blinking, humid noses touching the pink fleshy holes of surprised eyes, the penultimate glory of tragedy, the mysterious end of an era, wincing at the ominous mushroom cloud of man's fallible ego, shrinking back into a warm, dry nest soon to be lifted up into the halo of sunlight exploded by the salacious supernova. And the worms will twist painfully, attempting to swallow the government dirt passed off as banquet cheese. We're all ready to inhabit the same case now. We all make the same amount of money now. We're all ready to inhabit the same case now. We all make the same amount of money now. We're all ready to inhabit the same case now We all make the same amount of money now We've come to realize that all snowflakes are identical At the precipice of everything At the chow mein of everything I will hold you desperate and you will hold me back And we will clench hands like smoldering skeletons wearing straw hats, draped in roses on a park bench in front of a lily-padded pond. At the precipice of everything, office workers will throw boxes of shredded paper out of the windows and down onto Market Street, making it snow confetti like a World Series for everyone. The precipice of everything Children will pull on their sweaters And grab one last mouthful of milk To witness granite mountains Crumbling into the valley floor On live television The architecture of the overhead projector Laying back into the cradle Of an ancient glacial lake Floating with the yellowed bones of polar bears At the lightning strike of everything, old stars will become unhinged from the corners of the draperied universe, fall like unimportant sparks from a welder's acetylene torch, sputtering into the blackened soil like a dying oyster, surrendering its bubbling shell up to the unfeeling sea. At the tsunami of everything Elbows will become shoulders and necks will transform into throats Bears will become salmon and salmon will rainbow back into bears Icy water will filter into yellow steam Steam will assimilate into polluted rain clouds bulging with freedom At the white horse of everything, we will forget all that we've ever learned and ever known Reverting into blind-eyed zygotes once again Slapping our awkward tails into the golden brown ooze Cows will low peacefully under the perfectly exploding moon And we will be naked again like orphans on the avenue At the massive monolith of everything We will forgive ourselves for all the things we've ever done For all the daunting things that we never had the guts to do And the hope diamond will lay upon a purple pillow With no one to steal it or to covet its superimposed beauty And at the precipice of everything... You and I will hold one another brave... Like twitching dried husks of maize... Like a... Blowing swatch of fox fur on a fence nail in the black mountains... Like a... Blowing swatch of fox fur on a fence nail... In the Black Mountains.
0: Okay, everybody. That is Milo Martin. Milo Martin. Milo Martin. My friend Milo. Closing it out, another year of the other people podcast another year in general we made it thank you to everybody who listens to this show i appreciate you and i wish you a very uh, healthy and happy new year This is uh, Guy Lombardo. I play this every year. It's like a tradition. For me anyway. This is my favorite song. I always say that. I don't really have a favorite song, but what I mean is that Old uh, Lang Syne reliably gets to me. I don't know why. So anyway, happy holidays. Happy New Year, I will talk to you soon.